Right, we're live, everyone. Happy Friday. Today is May 11th, and this is episode 38 of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volt, founder of the Volt Firm and Nimble This Technology Fan in Cable. With us is John Downey, the prognosticator. John is also technical leader of Cisco Systems. John, welcome back. Good to see you. Always great to be back. <laughs> a little late, huh? I think we're about a month off. Yeah, well, you know, I missed I missed an episode because I, I got a little ill, and I apologize to everyone for missing it. We're going to make up for it this time. So also with us is Jeff Finkelstein, Executive Director of Advanced Technologies at Cox Communication. Jeff, glad to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, Brady. Thanks, John. Today's topic is MacFi. Cable Labs has a spec on remote MacFi that they put out around 2015, but recently they've reopened up and started working on that spec again, and, and they're updating it. And Jeff is one of the folks involved in that process of you know, redeveloping, improving, updating the remote MacFi specification. So we're going to get the latest updates, talk about MacFi, differences between MacFi, mm -hmm. RemoteFi, and, and you know, sort of what's, why should we even be talking about MacFi. But first, before we get on to that, we're going to cover one question from one of our listeners who's also from Cox Communication. And the question he sent in, is in reference to DOCSIS 3.1, what are the average speeds that you're seeing out of the modem Ethernet port? Using a Viavi One Expert meter, RF on the coax of the modem, so they're connecting the Viavi One Expert to the coax port, they're reading a little over one gigabit per second. He further says it doesn't make sense that for one, the average speed test on the network is averaging between 500 and 700 megabits per second. The Viavi meter, when connected to the ethernet port of the modem, will only run around 400 to 700 megabits per second max. So in, my, in the one check, all correct profiles for DOCSIS 3.1 are present. LDPC is working like a charm and there seems to be no physical layer impairments causing the bottleneck. So basically the question is, why is it when they connect the, the DOCSIS 3.1 test meter to coax, they're getting over a gigabit per second on a, a DOCSIS 3.1 network. But whether they're connecting to the modem from a LAN port with a PC and running a speed test or connecting to the LAN port of the modem with a, a DOCSIS 3.1 meter and running a LAN test from that meter, they're only getting 500 to 700 megabits per second. So there's a, there's a difference there. If you connect to dot to directly to the coax network, get over a gig. If you connect to the LAN port of the modem, we don't get anywhere close to a gig. So this listener saying, you know, what's up with that? And, and they also say, you know, any ideas? Hope you're all doing well. Keep up the YouTube videos coming. So post this out to you guys first. You know, why is the LAN port not performing as well as the DOCSIS network? Any ideas? So, uh, I uh, thanks for not even giving me a heads up on that question. <laughs> Normally, you would give me at least a heads up. It wasn't even a softball. No, this I mean, is a, this, this is stump the chumps, pick. and we're the chumps on this one. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Um, and and it would be easier if there was a drawing of it, right? So, if you're doing a speed test with the built-in modem of the Viavi test equipment, uh, I believe TP and uh, download a file into the modem of the test equipment. So there's no PC. The PC is basically inside the test equipment. Um, there is no WAN connection there. There's no encapsulation, no encryption. Well, there might be encryption. Um, that right there would probably be the, the least common denominator or simplest test. And then when you start hooking up through the WAN port of, say, a modem uh, or the Ethernet port, you know, a one gig port will never give you one gig, right? It'll give you about 960. You know, you'll never get one gig. And then I always point out to people when they see differences that when you do a speed test, it's usually at layer three of the OSI model, meaning it's including layer two overhead, 18 bytes. And if you don't know the...
from that 15, 18 byte ethernet frame has 18 bytes of overhead. So when you look at a CMTS and cable modem counters, they include that layer two overhead. So a one gig speed that could be limited by the CMTS and CM file, the QOS, the quality of service, that one gig file on the customer side, you're only gonna see maybe 950, 960, and that might be just layer two versus layer three reporting, not including the fact that a gig E port can't do a gig E. So um, <laughs> throw in wireless and that's gonna throw everything off. Throw in a VPN, that's gonna throw everything off. So if you get rid of all these variables and they say they're only getting like 400 meg. Well, up to, um, up to 700, they've seen up to 700. Um, but again, we have to throw in the fact that these speed test servers are, are part of the IP network, include, you know, that, that's behind the CMTS. So we don't, we don't know what's going on there as well um, when, when, you, when you use True. a speed test server. Yeah, we don't have control over that. I mean, that's why a lot of cable companies set up speed tests through their controlled environment. Yeah. So, you know, their text could go to a server, download a known file size, uh, not have to go outside the CMTS and keep it what I would call on net and do a speed test uh, as a baseline. And then you start throwing in the other variables. You know, I, I thought it, this kind of goes off on a, a, a you know, a, a tangent. Um, I thought it was interesting. Comcast said, you know, we're going to upgrade a lot of CPE out in the field, not because 3.1 is going to be prevalent. Everyone's going to grab onto it, but we need the Wi-Fi capability that comes with a new CPE because no one really wires anything up anymore. They wire up the main modem. That's it. They're not running Ethernet all through their house. So they, everyone relies on Wi-Fi, and the newer ones with better Wi-Fi gets better coverage and faster speeds. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, do you have any initial thoughts on this? Like, I mean, I would assume that Cox does have their own speed test server, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was giving John a minute to wind down. <laughs> once he gets going, <laughs> you got to wait for the dissipation of energy. Um, <laughs> He's the only person I've ever seen that challenges both Kumi and Bernard at the same time. There's so much kinetic energy built up sometimes. <laughs> there it is. That is. That's why you can't get too close when he's when he's on a roll. <laughs> that's um, why I got to turn on my fan right now because I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a couple thoughts. Right. Number one, you, you, as John said, you have to know the entire ecosystem. If you don't know which Ethernet chips are being used, what the operating systems are. Is it a, you know, the Viavis have a very finely tuned real-time kind of operating system. And they're able to, to get rid of a lot of the cruft that goes in, that's just inherent in Windows and Mac um, and even in Unix to deal with multitasking. So you, you get rid of a lot of that, you know, that background noise. You know, secondly, um, it's where the speed test is, as John said, that if the uh, speed test server is on net, that's one thing. If it's off net, it's something else. You know, because the reality is that uh, currently the, pre the prevailing wind speed on the internet is in the 70, 80 megabit range for like a, a long kind of uh, file uh, movement. So that gets in the way as well. So there's, there's just so many variables that get into it. And as, you know, as John said, with the change of CPE, we're getting more advanced chips um, that are in the CPE. The, you still have the legacy of what to, whatever's in the customer devices or in the, uh, in, in the you know, customer prem devices that you, know, you may get 960, 970, because of all the overhead that John pointed out, but it's uh, it, it's it's more you know you're going to be able to burst to line rate, but how long can you sustain that line rate, particularly when you're going off net? That's something that is is going to take a, a long time for the internet to catch up with the capabilities of the access networks. Yep. Yeah, you, know, you, you bring up a good point and something I, I remind me of also. I've done a lot of stuff with throughput and you know, there's so many variables come into play when you do single modem throughput. If you were doing aggregate throughput with many modems, then usually you can say, all right, I'm hitting my aggregate speed by doing, say, 100 meg on each one of these modems. But when you try to make one modem do line rate, 
use up the whole pipe. That, that's difficult to do. And one thing we didn't mention was layer four of the OSI model. Is it TCP or UDP? You know, if you're going to do a true speed test and separate downstream from upstream, you want to do UDP. If you're doing TCP, you know, all bets are off. Your upstream acknowledgements could be totally slowing down your downstream TCP flow. Sometimes I've never seen better than 70 to 100 megabits per second on a single downstream TCP session. So to get the modem to do, say, 700 meg, I had to do seven different sessions. So I had to open up seven different TCP flows just so that modem could show 700 meg. Or the TCP would be very sawtooth. You know, it would ramp up, ramp back down, ramp up, ramp back down. Right. It's hard well, to get the, a nice, clean TCP. Yeah, and that's the nature of TCP. That uh, with, with uh, you know, typical TCP, that it's a, it's a transmit and acknowledge, ACT-NAC. You know, you transmit so much, you have to get an acknowledgement before you're going to, you know, otherwise you've got to retransmit it. UDP, it's one direction. There's no check. You don't know if it got there and if it was any good. So there's a lot of, yeah, just, just inherently in the nature of TCP IP, which is why as uh, some of the current projects we have going on at Cable Labs, we're looking at basically coming up with different ways to reinvent TCP IP. A lot of the TCP implementations that are out there are based on what's called, uh, it was a version of TCP called TCP Reno, which came out of the Berkeley uh, system distribution or software distribution Unix, which was written back in like 1986. So there's new versions. The new one that has gained a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, energy behind it is called TCP Prague, as in, as in Prague <laughs> um, from, the, from the Czech Republic, which has a much more efficient algorithm for queuing up packets, and it's using something called L4S, um, low latency, um, I can't remember what the LS stands for, um, but it's, it's a way of being a much more optimal TCP stack. So as, you're, as the speeds are ramping up, we're starting to bump against just the inherent uh, nature and the capabilities of TCP IP itself. So I, I think that, I mean, you guys have made a couple of good points here. Um, I think, for one, test equipment vendors like um, Viavi and, and um, uh, uh, VX and uh, all these guys that are in the game, they've, they have really good control over their chipsets. They've come up with really efficient algorithms to make sure that when their chipset does a speed chat test uh, between the meter and the CMTS or the server sitting behind the CMTS, it's really good. It's going to be. It's going to be multi-threaded. It's going to be able to achieve over gigabit speeds, especially when it's connected right to the coax, not to the modem, but to the, the uh, HFC coax, and communicating directly with CMTS. And and we are going to be able to get those gigabit speeds. Now, if you're a tech and you're connecting that meter to the Ethernet port, you're using the DOCSIS chipset and the modem itself. Depending on what modem you're talking to and and what that modem capabilities are. You, you may, you may not get, well, if you have a gigabit Ethernet port in the cable modem, you're never, ever going to get over a gig. You, as John indicated, you may get 800, 900 megabits per second if you have a really awesomely optimized cable modem. But one cable modem is going to be different than the next cable modem. So I think we're going to see this type of stuff coming up a lot where you may have a subscriber that's expecting a gigabit per second, and depending on how we do that speed test or to what server you do that speed test to, we're going to a gigabit Ethernet port. You're not going to achieve gigabit speeds on that modem. And, and this is part of the learning curve that we're going to go through in the industry with trying to deliver gigabit Ethernet uh, over modems. So that's, it's just something that we have to understand how, how the network works. Any final closing thoughts on that question before you go into MacFi? No, that was, that was 15 minutes just on one question. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> so we have trouble covering questions. So, Jeff, you are on the Cable Apps uh, MacFi working group. Do you want to um, maybe just tell us a little bit of, you know, maybe why we're doing this, how we got into this, uh, a little bit of summary on that? Sure. So, um, as, as Brady said, that Cable Labs developed, um, and, and we were all, many of us were part of that, the uh, remote Mac 5 spec back, you know, in 15, 16-ish, 
we were we were talking about it, and and what it addressed at the time was what the MacFi architecture would look like, and it, it it helped a lot in terms of being very clear about what constitutes a remote MacFi architecture and and RMD a remote MacFi device. What I realized, uh, you know, probably mid last year, was that. That in and of itself is, is a very important step, but you cannot interoperate. The only way you can deploy a remote MacFi solution is you have to bookend it, where it's got to be completely from a single vendor, which while vendors are very happy about as operators, it's a, uh, it's a big challenge because then, then you're, you're basically completely locked into that. And we're trying as an industry to go the other way and come up with ways to open source and take advantage of much more um, open sharing of, of software and protocols. So I had gone to Cable Labs and, and pitched the idea of starting a remote MacFi working group to focus on interoperability. And uh, what we've done is we've broke it into multiple phases. So the the first phase that we're working on is defining an interoperability remote MacFi spec so that you could take the upper network portions of the remote MacFi architecture, the DOCSIS controller, and from there communicate with multiple vendors, RMD devices. You also have the ability to have uh, um, a mix of RMD devices because it's all using these open standards. And, and we're basing it on basically using existing protocols that are out there today. So use Ethernet as much as you can, use DEPI, UEPI, GCP, um, if they're appropriate. So that's sort of the first phase. There's a, a, a sort of the uh, uh, second phase is with everything going on around virtualization, we started talking about, well, how can we virtualize the, the DOCSIS controllers? How can we take advantage of SDN, NFV? So as part of that, we're, we're gonna be, once we finish the first phase, the, the remote Mac 5 spec, we're gonna start on the virtual CCAP spec and deal with how do you use SDN as a way to set up flows? How do you use NFV to containerize the DOCSIS containers or if somebody wants to build a uh, complete virtual CCAP and, and use it to control remote FI devices? How are you gonna be able to interoperate at that level from a virtual CCAP perspective so you're not stuck once again having to bookend it? So that's where we're, we're look, going to be looking at things like whether it's uh, open flow with Onos, open daylight. Um, a, if we took Cord and we would use Cord as a way to define what we, I had jokingly called at one point, heard. Um, Cord is the central office, you know, reimagined as a data center. So I had been uh, meeting with the cord guys and I called it heard the head end reimagined as a data center. And for some reason that, that moniker st stuck around. So how would we do that? So that if we were going to build this virtualization environment, not just to control DOCSIS equipment, what if we were deploying OLTs and we wanted it to, to, uh, be used to manage the OLTs. And we could have the same upper network functions, everything above the DOCSIS layer. So it all looked the same from a provisioning and a monitoring perspective. A third phase was an idea that, uh, that actually Liberty Global first uh, pitched, which is what if you wanted to put the Mac processing into the field? And you would have a device, whether you put it into the head end, the hub, or even a field enclosure, like a, like a fiber node, like what we're putting in 
today for doing uh, RPDs and, and RMDs. What would that look like? And this plays in nicely to the sort of the flow of those that are deploying remote FIs and, and maybe don't want to virtualize the Mac. They want to keep the Mac, excuse me, either in x86 or in custom silicon. How would you make that work where you could drop it in and instead of having to backhaul the Mac to a uh, hub site, you could move the Mac into the field and then you could use the hub site as an interconnection point. Because as, uh, you know, as we're looking at our network transformation, our, our data centers are becoming hubs and our hubs are becoming data centers. So how do we create that using the open standards that are out there today? So those are the three phases of the remote MacFi working group. We're well into the development of the remote MacFi spec itself, the phase one spec. And we're now um, getting into and we're actually writing spec text. And uh, we're, we're having face to, we have our, our first face-to-face -face meeting in a couple of weeks where we're going to dig through the, uh, the, the spec itself and actually start fine-tuning it. You know, an important point is, is that, you know, we see this as being complementary to what's going on with remote phi. Because there's, there's some scenarios in which remote phi is, is the best technology choice. But then there's others that we thought that a remote Mac phi may be a better technology choice. So we want to be able to build that ecosystem so that it, it all comes down to where you put the Mac. And that's why we've been calling it the uh, flexible Mac architecture. Because we're really defining a way in which if you want to put the Mac with the Phi, that's great. If you want to put it in the field or if you want to put it in the head end in hardware or you want to virtualize it, the interfaces remain consistent. And the operators have the ability to use the FMA to put the Mac where it makes most sense for solving the business problem they're trying to solve. I, I, I like it. I mean, I think it's uh, the more options we have, the better. You know, as technologists, we have to be technology agnostic. You can't just uh, focus on one technology and you can't deploy technology for the sake of technology, right? It, all, it has to make business sense. You know, what you mentioned about the flexible Mac Fi and putting the Mac maybe out in the field, I envision a remote five solution where you have a really hardened data center, maybe in the Midwest somewhere, feeding the East Coast and the West Coast with remote fives. But maybe the Mac happens to be midway in between those places. You know, maybe the Macs are are being shared. You know, and Jeff, you probably remember this, and, and I know Brady remembers this. Remember Adelphia's collector node? Their idea yeah. of saving money on the upstream, they had a collector node with one return fiber, and they would have multiple other nodes. There were fiber in the downstream, but there were RF on the upstream, and they would feed that one collector node. And they were trying to save money basically on reverse lasers. But I, I, I sort of see that periodicity or frequency of his, history repeating itself on something like this, because remote Fi, I know today we Cisco just said that we we're going to support uh, daisy chaining. So say you have a 10 gigi fiber, you know a fiber node, remote fi, is only going to service maybe 2 gig of traffic. Well, did you waste 10 gig fiber to that one node? Could I take that 10 gigi fiber and just daisy chain it to another fiber? Because you just did node splits. So you have a lot of nodes in the same geographic area, or pretty close anyway, uh, and you don't want to run a fiber from the head end all the way out to that new node. So maybe I could daisy chain. Well, then maybe I could put a Mac fi in that first node and daisy chain the other nodes. And those nodes could tie to the first Mac. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there because that's what I do. I just throw out ideas and people can run with it. <laughs> Might not make sense at all, but hey. Well, and, and no, but that's... But I'm a, just thinking about... Uh, I mean, that's, that's a great... Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a great thought, John. And that's, the, that's some of the things we've been, uh, you know, pondering as well. And it's, you know, in the interim, and, and there's so many great unknowns here. You know, full duplex is a great unknown. Um, trying to do low latency, uh, mobile backhaul, mobile front haul. Um, there's just, you know, the, the realities of it, 
you know, there's many laws we can break. The laws of physics are not one of them. And the speed of light, whether it's moving through coax or moving through fiber, there's an inherent latency in it. And if you're trying to get sub five milliseconds and you want to separate the Mac from the phi by, you know, 2,000, 3,000 kilometers, uh, you've, you've got a real problem because you've just exceeded your latency just in the transit over, over the fiber. And, and the idea of being able to get, you know, a lot of capacity to, to sort of that first point in the network and subtend the nodes from there, whether you're daisy chaining RPDs or you're going to put the Mac out there either in a housing or maybe in an enclosure. Um, it's just the options that it gives you uh, to be able to deal with that. So, so we spent in, in some previous uh, podcasts a lot of times a lot of time talking about the RFI and, and you know, basically that's putting um, sort of IP data, if we, we can think of it, and the RFI device is just converting that to RF. But we've not spent much time talking about the MAC. And so I, I, I want our, our listeners to understand exactly what the MAC is doing and, and why it makes benefit to push, as you're suggesting, uh, Jeff, to push the MAC closer to the PHI device or the RFI device and, and actually make that a MAC PHI. What, what exactly does the MAC do? in the case of DOCSIS? Yeah, well, the MAC is what is, it handles quite a number of functions. Um, it, it's what does the, uh, it's what maintains the IP to cable modem tables. It maintains the, uh, the quality of service information, service flow information. It's where multicast happens. Um, it's where scheduling happens, the, the real magic of what's going on. And, uh, you know, because as, as folks may or may not know, uh, DOCSIS is considered uh, a, an Aloha protocol, which, as you would expect, started in Hawaii. But it's, it's a, you know, basically before you transmit, you have to request the ability to transmit. And then you're given a, a grant to transmit. And that's called a request grant cycle. DOCSIS is a slotted Aloha which is based on time slots, or, or as we call it, mini slots. So if you really look at the way that the, uh, the MAC functions is, there's really these upper MAC functions which deal with setting up flows, quality of service, maintaining the MAC tables, the IP tables, and et cetera. But then there's the lower layer functions which are very, very DOCSIS specific, where you deal <clears throat> with sort of preparing the information in such a way that it can be sent to the PHI where it's modulated over the, over the carriers, you know, you know, translated and transformed into the waveforms. So those distances between it becomes very critical as time becomes a, a, a function where you have to be very careful that you know, Doxis was very good at maintaining timing, but the difference between maintaining timing when you're in a 20 to 80 millisecond world is dramatically different than maintaining timing when you're in a 10 millisecond, five millisecond or less world. So we've got to be, we've got to be very uh, careful how we, how we schedule things to happen on the Doxis network. Yeah, so John, I know you've kind of looked at these timing things in a little uh, in, in your world of, of DOCSIS as well. Uh, any idea what timing impacts the subscriber, the end user of DOCSIS, when it starts to get bad or when the timing starts to get delayed? So I think it's kind of ironic, you know, when, when I first started in uh, the DOCSIS world with Cisco 18 years ago, uh, and I was learning about it when I was at uh, WaveTech and given training on this stuff and learning the spec. And I always felt, you know, we were kind of fighting with DSL. DSL was our enemy, right? Our, our, our villain versus cable. And DSL, one of the things we always hold against them was, oh, you can't be too far away from the CO. You can't be too far away from the clacker or whatever it was called. Uh, because the further away you are, the slower the speed because of the twisted pair and everything else. And now that's coming back around to haunt us because now we're talking about farther distances and delay 
And because of how the Docsis protocol works, as Jeff mentioned, it's a request grant cycle. And I've dealt with the request grant cycle for a long time, trying to understand upstream speeds, specifically per modem upstream speeds. When we got the Docsis 3.0 with multiple outstanding concatenation fragmentation uh, upstream bonding, it's not as big of a deal because we have multiple upstreams that can do request and grant. So we can get different from a 3.0 modem. But I would argue that even if you do remote FI and get rid of all your Docsis 2.0 modems, you're probably still going to have some 3.0 modems that don't register properly, and they register in 2.0 upstream mode, a single channel. We can't afford those modems to fall back to 2.0 type of speeds performance because they're doing a long-distance remote FI. With that said, and I, I can foresee this feature that Cisco has being come, maybe become a, a cable lab spec or something. Uh, it's called DPS, Docsis Predictive Scheduler. So it's a way, I can't go too far into the details, but it's a way for the scheduler to kind of predict the type of speeds he was allocated to get, what type of speeds he's asking for, and turn around a request and grant. Um, but I see what Jeff's getting at also is like, just because I have some feature to make best effort data potentially work properly and fast and all 5G mobile, that's very latency and jitter sensitive. Uh, you know, if I have to do 5G mobile. Um, so those things are still kind of up in the air. I've shown people that I can go super long distance with remote FI with my network, uh, my SIN digital network, a thousand kilometers. And I've shown that I can get line rate on the upstream. I've shown that P, even though the upstream acts are concatenated, they could be act suppression, uh, selective act, all these features they call uh, to make the acts a little bit faster. I, I've shown with 3.0 modems, you can get really decent speeds, even with the downstream TCP flow. Uh, but if it's a single channel, now I need this DPS functionality to keep the acknowledgements going faster so the flow can keep flowing as quick as possible. Um, but that was with best effort data. That's with TCP. We've done it with video. Um, over the top video is TCP based. So it's going to require our upstream acknowledgements. Uh, but like as Jeff mentioned, it would be like 5G mobile. Um, and I've personally, I've never tested gaming. So I have no idea um, how well gaming really is because I'm not a gamer. Uh, I haven't tested latency and jitter stuff with gaming. So I'm not really sure. Um, and that's why I think, you know, five, because it's simplicity. Keep it simple, stupid, right? The KISS principle. Keep the simplicity out in the field. You have a thousand nodes out there. There's no um, there, there's no iOS to upload. There might be firmware or something like that, but there's no iOS to upload. It's not layer three um, uh, IP scope, or it's not a CMTS out in the field. It's one local CMTS that you can control and put all the the energy into that one CMTS, and it controls all the remote files thousands of miles away. We've done some of that testing, and, and Jeff and I were just at a conference in Argentina, and one of the speeches I gave was um, we have a customer that's, and I find it funny, we talk about remote five being potentially a digital link on a metro ethernet ring. Ethernet ring, that means it's a ring, maybe a counter rotating redundant ring. So you have a primary path and you have a secondary path. What happens when you fail over? I found that with the delay, it's not a problem. I can make up for it with something called dynamic, dynamic latency measurement. But what happens if that delay changes drastically? So if that delay doesn't update fast enough to update, it's going to go offline. So we had, that's just, this is some of the stuff of our lessons learned of, you know, actually failing over to a different fiber link. What happens? Uh, and then manipulating a couple timers so that we can get an update quicker and modem stay online and ready to pass traffic. So, I mean, this is the type of stuff we're learning now, you know, best practices, lessons learned as we start implementing remote five, but being able to flexibly put the Mac, I think it holds some, you know, some advantages there as well. Yeah, and uh, I think you hit some good points. I mean, you know, we know that gaming, you know, from measurements that many folks have made, gaming is, if you can get 20 milliseconds or less, that's a pretty good experience. Virtual reality is about 14 milliseconds. Augmented reality, seven milliseconds. And these are, you know, just where a lot of the industry is moving, there's a lot of interest in these technologies. But then you start getting into 
the uh, mobile back hole, mobile front hole, where you have to get sub five milliseconds. Um, and then we throw into the mix a great unknown, full duplex doxes. And that has its own unique timing constraints. So having that flexibility to make those kinds of decisions or you know, whether you put the entire Mac, maybe you only put pieces of the Mac. And uh, spent a lot of time talking with the Cisco gang um, about DPS. Um, and, and people have been trying to get predictive scheduling working. I mean, since the days I was working on developing Unix operating systems, nobody really got it to work until now. So that in itself is just a, a tremendous advancement in the way that um, scheduling occurs. And, and you know, it, it's still got a long way to go, but the steps that it's made is, is a quantum leap from where others have been. So between not just DPS, but things like uh, Doxis Pi, which is a, a very unique scheduling algorithm that was developed by Cisco as well. You know, these are the kinds of advancements that we're making that are these incremental steps that are just making a huge difference in, in how, um, how the performance of the DOCSIS network is getting better and better and better. You know, and, and, and there's no limit at this point that you know, we can see that we keep making these incremental improvements, um, which just really are, are not just giving DOCSIS, a, a, you know, the cable network itself a long life, but it's a long useful life. So the, the incremental improvements yeah, I mean, are good, um, but by, by moving the, I mean, I think our, our assumption is that by moving the Mac closer to the Phi, the Mac that's doing the scheduling and stuff like that, closer to the Phi, the, the main concept there is that we're also going to reduce the latency, especially over long fiber optic links where the remote Phi is a far distance from where the hub site or the head end is. That, that's, that's the main concept by creating what we call the Mac Phi, right? Correct, correct, yeah. And, you know, there's a, one of the most expensive things a cable operator can do is build a new facility. And being able to leverage facilities we have in a new and unique way, whether you want to consolidate facilities, um, you know, by putting the Mac into the field and then turn our facilities into interconnects, or if you want to push things into the facilities. And as we move to a digital DOCSIS world, a digital cable world, we remove a lot of the combining equipment and, and things in the head end. Being able to utilize those facilities for that kind of processing just is, is going to make a huge difference in the overall performance of the DOCSIS network itself. Yeah, so, so the challenges are, I, I, so we, you know, we kind of covered some of the benefits, some of the potential pitfalls that I can see, especially when we talk about more of the third generation um, where we actually, we, we put an entire, it's almost like putting a CMTS and a remote FI together in a box, out in a field. Um, you know, to me, that becomes something that can be a larger point of failure than just having a remote FI, which, you know, the remote FI being just something that converts IP to RF. Now we're putting a much more complicated device out there, the CMTS, and you know, basically a whole CMTS in a box out in the field is, is I would kind of envision the concept of a Mac Phi. And you know, what are the thoughts around the, the concerns of that, of all that additional complexity, the heat challenges, the powering challenges, how do we handle and manage that? Well, so one of the, the things that's going on is there's, we're in a, the midst of a silicon revolution. So the first generation of Mac Fi's were using FPGAs. And they were, uh, they were in the 180 to 200 watt range. That's, that's an enormous amount of power. Um, considering our fiber nodes today are 150, 160 watts, our amplifiers are in the 110, 120 range and line extenders a bit less than that. So these new chips are, are you know, we used to have a separate Mac chip and a separate Phi chip. The next generation is it's all in a single housing, or it's all in a single piece of silicon. 
So the difference from a remote Phi chip today to a remote Mac Phi chip tomorrow is about two watts. So you're not looking at that kind of dramatic increase. And as we go down to node zero, the uh, RF amplification that's in these, you know, the, the devices in the field is less. And some of that can even be integrated maybe in the next generation chip into the silicon itself. You know, you guys um, know that way, way more than me. But what I do know is, is that if we can get, you know, the Mac and the Phi together at a minimal wattage increase over a Phi only, it's really a game changer because now we don't have to worry about those distances. We don't have to worry about how we're going to do full duplex doxis. We don't have to worry as much about low latency mobile backhaul doxis because we don't have that distance between the two. So our, our SIN network is, is, it's got to deal with <laughs> a lot of challenges. Um, you know, with the, just the fact that folks don't want to pull reinforcement fiber if we don't have to. But by utilizing, whether it's DWDM, whether it's 100 gig, 200 gig, 400 gig coherent, we can really have a, a dramatic impact on the performance of the DOCSIS network. Right, so we'd be feeding that MACFI with just fiber optic. E and would it be Ethernet into the MACFI? Or you said DEPI before is... Well, no, no, it would be Ethernet. The, the Ethernet. DEPI is, is more from a remote Mac core perspective because if you have the remote FIs and you're, you're, they're using DEPI, UEPI, GCP, DTI, PTP, DTP, et cetera, if you move the Mac into the field, you still have to talk those protocols to it. Mm -hmm. So, so Brady, you, you, you kind of went down the path of moving the Mac to every five, but I foresee it. Could we move somewhere in the thin halfway, halfway, the halfway distance? And then it is shared or it is one location that's like an old hub site. And you still have, you know, your, your CIN, your digital network still continuing on, but maybe it's only uh, hundred miles from there. And that makes it much more palatable or easy to have 500 RPDs sharing off that one hub site where, where your Mac is located. Your core is still a thousand kilometers away, but maybe your Mac is only a hundred miles away. You know, instead of putting, and remember there's a difference between remote buy, remote Mac buy and remote DT, remote CMTS, <laughs> distributed CMTS. Because just saying remote Mac buy doesn't mean you're putting a CMTS out in the field. That, that it's kind of like what Huawei does, right? There is distributed CMTS. Even Cisco had that idea 15 years ago, and we called it uh, uh, basically distributed CMTS. And um, way back in the day, and we said, you know, this is way before it's time. The technology and even the industry is not going to be accepting of this. You're going to get an IP guy to climb a pole and get into a node and console in. <laughs> it ain't going to happen, you know. So uh, things have changed a lot since then. Now the RF and IP guys are actually the same guys. Yeah, in, in a lot of cases. a lot of convergence out there that's happening. So, so from a timeline perspective, um, we're working. You know, Cable Labs is working on a spec. Jeff, you're working on a spec for for FDX. Is there has there been any um, objectives uh, set forth right now to when we would actually complete that specification? The the FDX spec? No, 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 the Mac 5 spec that you guys are working ah. on right now. So the, the first piece of it, we hope to have um, a draft release coming out late Q3, Q4 this year with the uh, IO1 issued in Q1 uh, uh, 19. And once we get D01 out, um, you know, we would want to be going into... Uh, starting to work on the VC cap spec. So we'll kind of be in parallel a bit because there we've got different people with different specializations. Um, the working group, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's one of the largest there have been. I think we've got 77 members now. 
And the VC um, is a virtual CCAP spec? Yeah, the VC cap spec, yeah, is for the virtual CCAP where we're going to look at um, defining the uh, control plane, you know, and management plane functions. Because um, that's the, the way I break it up is, you know, control plane is how you set up the flows, how you, how you um, get data to flow through the network, how you, how you manage all of that. Management plane is how you configure the devices. And then the data plane is, is where the, you know, the five feeds the data to the Mac and, and up through the network. So um, if we define the flexible Mac architecture, FMA, properly, we would be able to use it and has a, treat it as a way to automate the configuration and the management of the network. So to the upper layers, everything looks like Ethernet. And then at, from the middleware layer down, that's where the plugin modules go. So you could plug in a, a DOCSIS module, a PON module, Wi-Fi, even a cellular module. So from the, the management layer for the EMS, NMS, it, it's looking the same. But, you know, there's still the challenges when you're polling and collecting statistical data. You have to be very specific to the protocol at hand. But from the practice of setting up the flows and setting it up in such a way that wherever, whatever services the customer is on, whether it's DOCSIS, Pond, point-to-point -point Ethernet, Wi-Fi, the flows all look the same. The management of it looks the same. So this is where using something like, you know, Onos or OpenFlow, using um, Yang models to describe the, the uh, device configurations, and even maybe touching on services a bit and using a Tosca model as a way to describe services. So now we sort of have that utopian view of how we can describe it in this sort of very uh, uh, you know, simple language. And then all the magic is happening at the, at the plugin layer where it's transforming it from an Ethernet into DOCSIS, Ethernet to PON, Ethernet to Wi-Fi, et cetera. So, so it's going to be probably somewhere around this time next year before all the specs are in a position where vendors can start doing demo, actually demoing equipment maybe. Is that what we're looking at about a year from now before we'd see actual MacFi preliminary equipment coming out? Well, I mean, there's MacFi equipment today. But that equipment will will be um, uh, it's not adapted. Based. It's not right. It'll be adapted to use the standards, and all of those vendors are part of the working group. Yeah. You know, so I would expect that. I would expect we would have the virtual CCAP spec done, maybe in Q3 next year. Um, but since it's all standards based, um, you know, the folks tend to tend to uh, uh, kind of walk along with it. And as things are being codified um, and, you know, and turned into normal, and it's a little bit easier because it's software-based, I would expect the remote Mac core to be maybe six months to a year after that, we're into 20, because we've got some just inherent silicon challenges. Um, you know, at today's die size, um, and, and when you look at just the amount of uh, optical gear and switching equipment and the Mac processing that would have to go into a remote Mac core. Or even if you're going to use x86, to have something that's temperature hardened and able to support 20 to 24 remote Phi devices being subtended off of a distributed core, it's going to take time to get there. You know, we, can, we have to wait on those cycles of more to catch up with the needs of the technology. So, predictions on MacFi versus RFi? You think they're just going to be, as you said, augmenting technologies and uh, playing well together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I said a while ago, um, been quoted on it a few times that, you know, we 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 spent three, four, five years almost in this religious war, um, remote MacFi versus remote Fi. And uh, the only one who wins at religious wars are the arms dealers. 
I, I see them as truly complementary technologies. You know, there are some very logical, sound, technical, and business reasons why you want to deploy remote five. But to others, there are going to be sound, technical, business, and technology reasons why they would deploy a remote Mac five. If we can to get the interoperability and get the ecosystem in such a way that it'll support not just you know, an integrated CCAP and automate it using standards-based technologies and that same automation technologies and orchestration will work with a, um, a virtual CCAP, whether it's a virtual Mac or it's a physical Mac or a remote Fi with a virtual controller. That's just a, a win across the industry because, you know, the, the, the big piece now is it's, it's we've got to come up with ways to automate because as we transform from a fiber node today serving 500 households past to a, a distributed access architecture node providing services to 30, 50, maybe 60 households past. That kind of scale change where one node becomes 10, 14, 20 new nodes. We need a new way of managing that. We need a new way of thinking about it. And with the work being done in standards organizations, whether it's in part of open cord, um, you know, through ONOS, through things going on in IEEE, IETF, and, and broadband world forum or broadband forum. It's, it's things that we can take advantage of to just improve the quality of the cable network, sort of not just in the digital domain, but also in the, in the H or, or the RF domain. All right, John, how about from you? Predictions? <laughs> um, no, I mean, as I mentioned, we can't be technology agnostic here, or we have to be technology agnostic. We can't put our all right. Um, we are at the arms dealers. <laughs> Cisco deals the arms. Uh, we, we sell the equipment either way. I, I come back to supply and demand. If a customer demands it, we'll supply it. There's got to be a business case for it. Uh, from the very beginning, Remote 5 was the simple solution. It was a way, uh, it was a way to keep the nodes under 160 watts, which was a tight requirement for wattage. Uh, being tight control over the Mac. Now, most systems were only, be realistic, in nature, 20 miles of fiber, that's it. You know, in the Midwest, I was seeing some analog links that were using EDFAs to do, you know, erbium dope fiber amplifiers to amplify 15, 50 nanometer light and go, that was the limit of DOCSIS, right? The original limit of DOCSIS was 0.8 milliseconds one way, which is 100 miles of fiber. Um, but now we're looking at, you know, a lot farther than that, potentially. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but that's the beauty of digital is we hope we can do it a lot farther. That way we can put uh, the, the smart, the brains of our CMTS, whether it's virtual cloud or hard iron, uh, in a nice secure location with backup power and security and I mean, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we put a remote five devices we used to have to try to find a pizza box CMTS, a medium-sized CMTS, yeah. a big CMTS. We're like, we don't need a pizza box anymore. We just do a remote five device in the basement of an the basement of a hospital, uh, a basement of, or it doesn't have to be a basement, you know, but it could be anything like that. It could be hospitality, like a, a hotel. So, I mean, I, I said this before, I, I could almost see like an integrator, like, remember the old lodge would be like a video integrated for all the hotels out there. Why don't we have something like that with Remote Fi? You know, offering Doxus 31 to all the hotels. You know, in, in Vegas, it's the best, it's a great place to offer, you know, like each hotel in Vegas is like a mini city. You know, they're huge. So, I mean, Remote Fi makes a lot of sense. Uh, I like the idea of flexibility and a flexible Mac Fi, putting the Mac maybe closer. I don't like the idea of, uh, of, Dismissing remote fi for remote Mac fi with unproven fears. Like if we keep saying it kill us, well, I want to see the actual results. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to see someone show me 
uh, 5G mobile is not going to work. Because uh, I can tell you, I can show you best ever, and I can get it to work fine over a long distance. So I just want to see, uh, I'm a technical guy, right? <laughs> I'm an engineer. So I just want to see, you know, uh, uh, test cases and baseline testing and comparisons. Yep. Yeah, completely agree, John. All good points. All good points. So, guys, we're, we're running down on you time know, here. Actually, I got one more Okay, one more point, one John. More Go point. ahead. <laughs> Jeff brought this up. <laughs> and I think it actually it, it holds true is FDX, full duplex doxis. One of the things we've been showing this off lately to a couple customers, and uh, I'll be out in Germany. I think you'll be out there too, right, uh, Brady, for the Unger show yep. in June. Um, we'll, we'll have an FDX demo out there, the full duplex doxis. One of the things that has to occur is it's full duplex for a lot of the plant, but modems off the same tap, it's really simplex. It's half duplex. Half duplex would be like an oxymoron, right? So simplex, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it's not full duplex. Um, you have to know when modems are transmitting and receiving so they don't interfere with each other. So you have this sounding functionality where the CMTS has to tell a modem to transmit and the other modems in that area listen to find out which modems interfere with each other based on attenuation, port-to-port isolation, the fiber node, different distances. And as Jeff mentioned, if my plan is 100 miles of SIN now, or 1,000 miles, 1,000 kilometers, or whatever it happens to be, and the CMTS has to tell the devices to start sounding and get the information back, how quickly can that occur? I mean, one, it only really has to occur when the modems register, but you still want that to happen over time because cable plants change over time. Um, so that, that's one of the things, the unknowns is what happens with an FDX environment when we do a super long distance away. Uh, the echo cancellation that we talk about for upstream and downstream not interfering with each other, that is hardware in the node itself. So that's not gonna be a problem because that's not part of the core, that's part of the node. Um, but the sounding part, maybe that, is something that needs to be looked into. And I'm sure, Jeff, that's probably one of the things you guys are talking about. Yes. All right. All right, that was your last item, John. But I will give you one more uh, opportunity to promote anything you have coming up, such as the Angus show you mentioned. Anything you want to Anything you want to pro promote? I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it. Angacom? CMTS, yeah. Yeah, I will be, be there. <laughs> so, I, I will. I will be there. Uh, a few of my. Uh, I think Jeff Boren's going to be there. Ron Rannick. So we're going to have a whole slew of guys out there uh, supporting um, remote fi interoperability with other people's remote fi devices. Uh, FDX. We'll have a 5G and a cloud solution with uh, Orchestrator. And as Jeff pointed out. You know, automation and uh, orchestration is going to be key. Uh, SDN, a way to keep track of all these devices out in the field. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually smart enough. I like the idea of like saving power. Is there a way to change the power? Uh, like for our, our, our inode, you can turn off certain hybrids if you don't need to save power. Could you bias the current on some of the hybrids if you aren't doing full spectrum? That saves you power. It might not save much, it might save a couple watts per node, but when you have thousands of nodes, it can add up. Power's power is yeah. power. Jeff, anything you want to promote? Um, so, yeah, if, if, if there are folks that are interested in the uh, work being done on remote fi or, or any of the cable lines activities, um, you know, please join, even if you just want to be an observer. Um, you know, the, the bigger the diversity of thought we have, the better off the products will be, you know, the products being the, the specifications will be in the long run. I think that's a great thing to bring up, Jeff. Uh, you know, the, the great work that happens at Cable Labs doesn't happen without people contributing to the working group. So uh, a good thing to add in there. So John and Jeff, I wanna thank you guys so much for your time today. This was a, a very good episode, very, very informative um, on MacFi.
Our next episode will be May 18th, which is actually next Friday because I was sick. We missed the last episode on our normal scheduled time. Our topic will be 10 gig over uh, coax and DOCSIS 3.1. Uh, with Daniel Etman from uh, from NREST. And uh, so we'll be there next Friday. Please join us. Uh, we do our best to bring as best technical content to all of our audience every month, this time twice in the same month. Uh, you can watch us live on YouTube or catch our recorded episodes either on YouTube, volpfirm.com slash events, or just download the audio-only version where you don't have to watch our ugly mugs every time and uh, using your favorite podcaster. And if you enjoyed us, please do subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thank you so much for being here, Jeff and John, and also to all our audience. So thanks, everyone, and so long. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for joining. Bye, Nora. <laughs> Ciao.